Welcome to Chick Chat with Unapologetically Karen, the podcast for women by women. I'm Karen Webb, architect, author, entrepreneur, creative junkie, and your host. Chick Chat is your resource for building your big, bold, and beautiful feminine life. So join me for some eye-opening and jaw-dropping dialogue that has people talking. Hello, everyone. I am super excited today to introduce you to Nyla Faraz. She is called, her other name is The High Pimpstress. She is a professional performer, exotic showgirl, aerialist, fire dancer, and master instructor with a career spanning over two decades. She has performed I'm jealous of this, in 26 countries and headlined for numerous couples cruises and resorts. Her formal education is in dance conditioning, sports rehab, and kinesiological stretching and nutrition. She is the owner of Violet Flame Studios in Scottsdale, Arizona, which is where I met her, and specializes in teaching women the secrets of seduction and how to connect with their feminine energy and heal trauma through sensual movement. Hello, Nyla. So happy to have you. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. So this is great because let me first just share with everybody that um, I met you through one of your classes and I, and mm-hmm. some of them may know because I did this, it's funny, I did a podcast early on this year and it was with uh-huh. a, like a um, psychic. She basically okay. reads energy, et cetera. And she wanted to do a reading on me. And she said, the funniest thing is she said, okay, your mom is coming through. And I, I lost my mom about a year ago. And she uh-huh. said, okay, she's trying to tell me something. I don't quite get it. She goes, I'm seeing you like, like kind of like an aerialist thing. What is it? She goes, she's wondering, she thinks you're thinking about taking, she goes, it's like a pole dancing class. And I was like, nobody knew that. So anyway, yes, you guys, this is it. So nobody knew that you were taking I hadn't one? taken it yet. I hadn't found you oh, yet. you hadn't taken Mm-mm. it yet. Hadn't taken mm-hmm. it yet. I was signed up for the first one. And she said that and I was like, oh my God, my mom is right here wow. watching the pole dance. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. So yeah. everybody knows that I was into it. Well, that is how I met Nyla. So let's jump in and tell me a little how you got into this profession, all the different facets that you do. Okay. Yeah. So this is a long story. You might want to <laughs> schedule another podcast. Um, so originally, so I was, I've been a, I grew up in Las Vegas. I'm born and raised in Las Vegas. I grew up in Las Vegas and my entire life I've been dancing um, performing all different kinds of dance styles. So my parents put me into dance classes at a very young age, like about three years Mm -hmm. old. And so I was constantly taking different types of dance. So ballet, jazz, tap dance, um, Latin dance, hip hop, everything that you could possibly imagine that had anything to do with dance. I was all about it. And when I was little, you know how you always ask children like, Oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you know, they tell you, Oh, a doctor, a shark, whatever, whatever. So I would always say I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. I don't know if you remember oh my God. the show Solid Gold. I do, right? yes. So now I'm I'm totally like letting everybody know exactly how old <laughs> I am, right? But I wanted to be a solid gold dancer. That was that was the oh what I wanted to do. And in Vegas, we had billboards 
that had show advertisements on them. And so when we would drive past this uh, billboard, I would be like, I want to be that girl. I want to be yeah. that. I want to be a showgirl. I want to wear the feathers and the diamonds and da, da, da. So of course my parents, they were like, okay, let's put you in dance class. Like, sure. <laughs> they never, they never discouraged it. They never, nothing. Yeah. So I, and, and then when my parents divorced, my father, I stayed with my father and my other two siblings went with my mother. And so my father raised me as a single father. And as a young single father at that, mm -hmm. so, you know, he was working full time uh, doing construction, which meant he was gone from five in the morning until like nine o'clock at night. And for a 13 year old left on her oh, own wow. in Vegas, yeah. that could be a problem. Yeah. So a lot of what he did because dance classes were cheaper than daycare. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Or after school yeah. care. And at 13, I don't really qualify as, you know, needing daycare anyway. So he put me in dance classes and I was close enough that I could walk to UNLV. And so I, I took part of my classes at UNLV and then some classes I took at local dance studios. But at UNLV, he could register me as a special student and I could audit a class for a semester for like less than $100. And, you know, it was something that he could also check in with my professors to make sure that I was there. So he registered for me for classes and I was in school uh, from like seven in the morning, seven thirty in the morning until like two in the afternoon. And then from about five o'clock until about nine o'clock, I was at the UNLV campus taking dance classes. And what kind of dance, so, what kind of dance classes at that time? Um, those were uh, dance theory, um, jazz, basic mm -hmm. jazz. I also took a musical theory class and I took some um, uh, just to understand music. Mm -hmm. And he also had me taking some guitar lessons with him and things like that. So I was very much into dance and music, uh, jazz and ballet. And so I was taking some contemporary ballet classes and uh, working with uh, Vasily Sulich, who was the director of the Nevada Ballet at the time. And so I was taking dance conditioning classes. We call them Pilates now. Uh -huh. but back, in the, okay. back then, they were called dance conditioning. And so I took those. And so I was taking a lot of those classes. Well, an audition came up and I asked my dad if I could skip school to go to the audition. And he said, all right, this one time. <laughs> so I went to the audition. I was about, I was probably maybe 14 going on 15. And I went to the audition and the audition was for a magician's assistant. And my father and I spent a lot of time at the magic club doing magic. So I did coin tricks and oh, sleight neat. of hands. I had doves. Mm -hmm. I did dove magic. So a lot of like just, you know, close up uh, sleight of hand type of magic. And I wanted to be the girl in the box. That's what I wanted. <laughs> that gets, I wanted to be a box jumper. That gets cut. And, that gets cut up. That one. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be a box jumper. And at the time, Melinda, she was the first lady of magic. She had a big show in Vegas. And the guy that I was auditioning for, he was actually friends with people that knew her because he was also a magician. So when I went to this uh, audition, there were a bunch of other girls there but they didn't seem that interested. There were maybe five other girls there and they just didn't seem that interested in this guy's production and what he was doing. And the guy, to be really honest, he was extremely eccentric. He looked homeless. Oh boy. Yeah. He had a long beard and he just didn't look like, like he kind of gave off like, you don't really have a magic show. Yeah, You're like, just a weirdo like a, that yeah, rented a yeah. dance studio a, and trying to get creep, chicks. Right? Creepy vibe. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, no, he didn't give a creepy vibe. It just gave off it wasn't a Las Vegas production okay. vibe. Okay. And so it gave off that yeah. vibe, but he didn't give off a creepy vibe. Okay. I wasn't creeped out by him. He was just very eccentric and, and didn't look like he had a show. Okay. 
So all of the other girls kind of were like, okay, whatever, whatever. Well, I was really interested because I was 14 and I wanted to work as a magician's assistant. So of course, yes. in my naivete, he could have been Mr. Freaky <laughs> Chaser. I don't know. I was four, I was 14. I was like, I'll do it. Yeah. I didn't, I was just 14 year old naive. Right. So, um, the other girls didn't want to be part of the show. So they kind of left. And at the end it was just me. And he's like, okay, well, you know, you do really well. And we did a tap dance section and, you know, he auditioned us on a couple of different things mm -hmm. and tap was one of them that he was really big in. And, um, he was surprisingly good. He, he was really old man. His name was amazing Vincent. And, um, like I said, long beard, scraggly looking. Yeah. Just really eccentric and awkward. Anyway, he asked me if I wanted to do the show and I said, sure. So when he found out how old I was, he was like, well, you know, you're underage and this show is a traveling show. It's, it's oh, going to wow. be, you know, doing a lot of different things. So it was necessary that my father meet him. And, you know, my father met him, they talked and my dad was like, yeah, you know, if, as long as I can come with to, you know, chaperone and parent my daughter and, oh, you know, that's right. fine. So long story short, we ended up becoming magic partners and him and my dad actually hit it off and became very good friends. And my dad was a carpenter by trade construction worker. So my dad ended up building and rebuilding a lot of his magic props for the show. Oh, very cool. And so mm -hmm. we did a lot of street performing and we would perform Venice beach. We would perform at the swap meets in Las Vegas. And so at 14, 15, that's kind of how I started. Okay. And then he built me a dance studio in the back of his house. And we lived in the casita and he built this dance studio for me so I could have a dance studio at my disposal. Wow. Anything I needed, this man gave wow. me like, he was just a great, great guy. And him and my dad ended up becoming very good friends. And that was how I got my start. So now we skip forward to senior year of high school and I still want to be the girl on the valleys. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I still want to be the showgirl. Yeah. I still want to be the showgirl. I've been the magic assistant. Now I want to be the showgirl. So I am auditioning for um, Bally's Jubilee and I was underage and they offered me the part, but I couldn't do it because I was underage. And I said, well, I turn 18 next month. Okay. And she said, okay, well, if you come back next month, um, talk to me next month, I will find a spot for you in the show. And so I did. I went back the next month. I turned 18. I told her I'm ready. And she hired me. Um, and I started understudying for Bally's Jubilee, and which I believe now uh, is called the, the Horseshoe. I'm not sure what it's called now. Okay. Anyway, Bally's isn't called Bally's anymore. But anyway, it was the longest running show there. And Bob Mackey did all the costumes for oh, it. Wow. Um, it was just one of the best shows in Vegas. And so I started understudying for that when I was a senior in high school. And then from there, I started working for the Flamingo doing a tribute show, which was a you know Madonna, Elvis Roy Orbison, we had all these different um, impersonators. Mm -hmm. And that was what I started doing there. And then that took me on to cruise ships. And I started working on cruises. And then from there, I started working with Cirque du Soleil doing um, Ariel. I didn't really want to do Ariel. I wanted to be a dancer. But Guy, who was the original owner of uh, and founder of Cirque du Soleil long, long before it was Alegria and Santa Banco and all right. that stuff. Uh, he was like, no, I want you to be an aerialist. And I was like, all right, well, does it pay? Because I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I went and I did that. I worked in Japan. I worked in Mexico. I did some industrial shows throughout uh, uh, Montreal and Toronto and things like that. And then when I came back from Japan, one contract, I wasn't getting work as a dancer. 
And that was when one of my girlfriends suggested to me, she was a showgirl in uh, uh, Folies Bergier, and she suggested that I go work in the strip club. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm not one of those girls. <laughs> I'm a technically trained dancer. Right, right. And she was like, she was like, yeah, bitch, we're all technically trained dancers till we can't pay the bills. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Wait, now how old were so, you? How old were you then? How much time had passed? I was, I was 19. 19. Okay. I was 19. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, barely, just about to turn 20. So I was 19. Anyway, I went over, went to the strip club and this is a true story. Very true story. Went to the strip club, talked to uh, the manager mm-hmm who I became very good friends with. He was a very good friend of mine. And um, I said, you know, I'm not comfortable auditioning on the main stage. I've I've auditioned and I've danced, but I've never been topless in front of a room full of men before. And I was so nervous about it. And he's like, okay, well, everybody has to audition. He's like, I know that you're a dancer, but I still need to see that, you know, you're going to be okay on stage here. And I was like, okay, well, can I audition on the backstage? So the audition is in front of an audience. It's not like you're just auditioning for the manager. No, okay. no, no, no. That's creepy and weird. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, so, 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 so here's the thing. If you ever go to a strip club and the, and the manager asks you to audition for him privately in his office, go, run. run. Okay. That's not, a, that's not legit. <laughs> that's not a Don't thing. do that. Okay. Don't do that. Okay. No. So I ask him if I can perform on the backstage and he's like, well, that's the VIP room. That's not usually where we have our girls audition. And I said, yeah, I know, but there's a pole back there. Mm-hmm. I've done Ariel with Cirque du Soleil. Like, I would feel more comfortable on the pole. Okay. I just would feel more comfortable if I had the pole. And he's like, all right, let me see. So he goes and he says, I've got VIPs in there. So you'd better be yeah, good. don't mess like, up. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I'm like, all right, fine. So I get up and I get on the stage and I start doing my thing. I climb up and I'm like 20 feet in the air and I'm just like, oh, my God. And I'm oh. freaking out and I'm so nervous. I'm so nervous. And I haven't even taken my top off oh, yet. God. <laughs> and I come down at the base of the pole. And as I look down from the pole and I'm looking around the VIP room, in the booth over here to my left is Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci and a bunch of strippers. And they're sitting there and just looking at Oh, me. my goodness. And then the next booth is Sylvester Stallone, a bunch of his friends, and some more strippers. And they're also just looking at me. And then leering at me from the corner in a flannel shirt tied around his waist and his, you know, Doc Martin boots and his greasy hair is Judd Nelson. Oh. And he's just like staring at me holding a beer. No way. Okay. And I remember looking around and I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing with my life? I'm stripping for the Goodfellas Rambo and Breakfast Club. All in one. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> as I'm dancing, I look down and Joe Pesci is looking up at me. He's got a hundred dollar bill in his hand. And he gestures for me to lean over. And so I look down at the little man and I'm like, hi. And he's like, are you the girl that's auditioning? And I said, I am. Oh. And he goes, he goes, you're going to be great. And he tips me a hundred dollar bill nice. on my first night. And at that wow. point I was like, oh, I got this. Yeah. I got this. Oh but my gosh. My first, my first tip was a hundred dollar bill from Joe <laughs> Pesci. I'm going to be amazing. That is, that is pretty awesome. That story. That's great. So then you started after that there. Yeah, I started uh, there and then I worked my way around some of the clubs in Las Vegas. And then I started traveling the circuit in the United States. And then in between that, I would take contracts on cruise ships and legitimate dance jobs working as a showgirl or a magician's assistant. And so in between those contracts, when money was right, tough, then you would. I'd go over to the club. Or some, what I ended up doing was after a couple of years, I realized, wait a minute, I'm making like four or $5,000 a night. Wow. And if I really focus this and make a character, and we did more burlesque 
shows rather than just like strip clubs at that time. And so you had to have full costumes. You had to have, you know, three song sets on stage. It wasn't just walking around the club in a G string begging for lap dances. It it was very, very different. And so most of the clubs that you work in, there's a difference between a gentleman's club, a show club, a titty bar, and a strip joint. Like there's differences. And so I started to learn really quickly that if I applied myself and focused and made a name for myself and had a gimmick, which is where the high pimps just came from, then I could book my own shows and command, you know, a higher performance fee, but then also make my own money and tips and lap dances and things like that. And, and that was when I set my um, goals on retiring at, at 30 and um, not having to work in clubs anymore. I see. Okay. So wait, let me, so you said there's differences between all of them. What, what yeah. is the difference? So a gentleman's club is going to be probably a little bit higher class. Mm-hmm. The ladies will usually wear um, gowns. You won't oh, be able to just really? walk around. Okay. Yeah, you have to wear a gown. Um, usually like a very sexy revealing dress, but you have to wear a gown. You can't just walk around in a G-string. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's and they, and at the time, the, the gentlemen's clubs were all in Vegas. They were all mafia run. Oh. So they were really strict. No tan lines, no tattoos, wow. no crazy piercings. You couldn't come in. Like you had to look like you were thousands of dollars. Right, right. Wow. You could not just look like. I'm crackhead, single mom trying to make a living. Like yeah, you couldn't yeah. do that. It, it, that's not how they were running their business. The the fees to get into those clubs were fifty dollars a person. I see. Yeah. And then they were twenty dollar drinks, and then they were you know like just all that. So you had to have money to get in there in the first place. Right. Now money isn't always a representation of men know how to treat women properly, but you know you also have to take a minute to understand like I'm volunteering to be sexually objectified. Right. So I have to kind of accept that I'm volunteering to be in this role. Right. And I have to accept what comes with it. Uh, I can't complain about it because that's what you chose to do. I'm volunteering to be here. Okay. So that would be a gentleman's club. Um, A strip club will be someplace where you go, where the ladies are likely doing striptease shows. Right. And then lap dances. A titty bar is going to be like a local just bar down the street, and they probably don't even have a DJ. They probably just have a <laughs> yeah. jukebox, and the bitches are picking their own music and dancing on a little itty-bitty <laughs> stage. And it's just cheap and low-class and ratchet. Yeah. But there's money to be made there. Right. I've worked in all of them. Have I've you? worked in all okay. of them. Okay. So now yeah. let me ask you, because you mentioned it, and that was that is something I wanted to ask you. So, you know, there is that stigma with with, you know, working as a stripper. Um, how did you not feel? I mean, I know you felt objectified and you knew that and you were getting into that, but it also sometimes comes with, you know, really kind of lowering your self-esteem, feeling less than it can really take a mental toll. How did you make sure it didn't do that for you? How did, what did you do? Well, it, it, it did do or did it? No, it did do that for me. Absolutely. It It, it will for anyone. It will for anyone. I don't think that there is anything wrong with a woman taking her clothes off Mm -hmm. and being an exhibitionist or performing. I think that these are all wonderful uh, expressions for women to do. It's just unfortunate that we aren't given environments that are safe for us to do it in. And men are not coming into strip clubs to regard women with respect. They're just not. No, they're not. You're right. They're just not. So, you will find men that are coming in there and know how to behave like gentlemen, but you also get the worst of 
the worst right. coming in there too. You get despicable men who hate women that want to come in there and they get off on berating you and putting you down um, and objectifying yeah. you. And it's a power exchange. Yes. It's a power exchange. Yes. It's money. Here, I'm giving you money. Do this. Right. Right. Or, you know, so in the beginning, especially because I'm unenhanced. Okay. And I am <laughs> a, and I am a, a, a very natural B cup. Uh-huh. At the time, everybody was getting fake boobs. Okay. So the norm in the clubs was big fake boobs. And I wasn't that. Right. Big fake boobs, blonde hair. That was kind of the Barbie look that was really popular at the time. And that's what a lot of men tend to like. So I didn't fit that. I'm Latina with a big ass, little titty. You have a great ass. Let's just clear that up. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm envious. So, I have no ass, so I'm super envious. So go ahead. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But I didn't have what I felt was holding me back. And and it is natural when you're in an environment like that and you are competition to the girl next to right. you that you pick yourself apart. Right. And men, because they don't normally get hit on by attractive women outside of the strip club on a regular basis, some men might, right. but for the majority of men, it's not something that happens for them. So it's a turnabout when they can come into the club and now I'm approaching them, asking them to do something and they get to reject me now. I see. Right. So it can be a fetish for some men. It can be a turn on for some men. It can be revenge for some men. It can be um, a power exchange, a vulgar display of power right. for some men, Wow, you know, so it just depends. So you have to deal with that. But in the very beginning, especially as a young woman, I'm thinking, well, I don't have big boobs. So my value and my identity has to be placed on my boobs because I don't have big boobs. I'm not making the money that this girl's making. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so I base my value on the money that I'm making. And here's the really fucked up part. One night I could have a customer that absolutely adores me. And spends hours telling me that I'm the most perfect specimen of a woman he's ever seen. My tits are perfect. My ass is perfect. My feet are perfect. My eyes are beautiful. My hair is great. He's never seen anyone like me, blah, blah, blah. He can spend all night telling me that and giving me his last dollar. I could leave out of there making $3,000 knowing that I just had this man give me his entire bank account, his entire paycheck, and I'm perfect. And I'll be on a high then. Right, right. And I'll be pretty feeling myself. Yeah, yeah. The very next night, if I go in and I spend the first two hours and nobody wants to buy a dance for me and I've only got 50 bucks, yeah, my my self-esteem is going to reflect that because I allow it to affect me in that way. And it's really hard not to let it affect you. Yeah. And then you have the stigma of people assuming that you are an abused woman. You are a crackhead, you're an alcoholic, you're uneducated, you're a high school dropout, you're a whore, you're promiscuous. You have all these other things right. that people wow. throw on you that they expect of you. And, you know, to be really honest, stereotypes exist for a reason. Right. Every right. stereotype. That's true. It exists for it a does. reason. You're right. You're right. So when you get people saying things or treating you in a way that you're, you know, just a stupid dumb bimbo, you kind of want to be like, actually, no, I have a, I had a, a 3.9 GPA yeah. and I have two college degrees. It just so happens that I don't make the money with two college degrees yeah. that I make there. hustling for lab dances. So, you know, but you kind of have to expect that this is what they think of you. So that ends up 
being portrayed onto you and you, or projected onto you rather, and you end up absorbing it and you end up kind of making it about yourself right. because people treat you that way. And so you feel like, you know, these people are going to expect me to be stupid. So then you feel like you need to overcompensate to try to prove you're not stupid, or you need to let people know that like, I don't even drink. I don't do drugs. Right. Like right. I didn't, I didn't even start drinking wine until I was 28 years old. Wow. Yeah. And I didn't start smoking weed until I got into um, studying herbal medicine when I was 30. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even start doing those things. They were not even a part of me working in a club. I was a businesswoman. I worked 12 hour shifts. I was there to make money. I was there to make the most amount of money right. that I possibly right. could because I wanted to retire at 30 and I needed half a million dollars to do it. So I had an agenda to, to right, fulfill right. and I, I, I couldn't be high or drunk or, or any of that shit. And, you know, for me, one of the women that trained me early on, she was like, you know, you need to decide uh, what your price is. Huh. And I was like, I don't understand what you mean, what my price is. And she's like, what's your price? Someone comes in and wants to fuck you. What's your price? Oh, and I was okay. like, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I don't really want to do that. And she's like, okay, so then decide your price. And I was like, no, 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 I, I don't no want price. to. I'm, yeah, not for I'm not for sale. And she's like, okay, okay, then that's your price. But you need to decide that right now. Interesting. Okay. And so for me, my thing was like, okay, if I wouldn't fuck you for free, there's no amount of money that could get me to fuck you. Exactly. There you go. Well, that's, that's it. Just yeah, wasn't going to yeah, happen. Yeah. Okay, interesting. And so for me, I was in a, a monogamous relationship for the first, you know, eight years of my career anyway. And so I wasn't really even thinking about. Oh, really? Yeah. Sleeping with yeah. any of the customers. And in most states, it's illegal. So right. you didn't right. want to have to worry about ending up in jail for a, you know, right. for $50 blowjob in the back room or some shit. Yeah. You know, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth it. Now, how did your monogamous relationship handle that? Because you were working in the clubs when you were in that relationship? Um, yeah. So I was with him for two years. 17. I w- he was my, um, I met him as a senior in high school okay. and we were together for two years. And then um, when I started working, when I told him that I was working, he knew I was a dancer and he knew that's what I wanted to do, my dream. But when I told him that I was working in the strip club, Mm -hmm. it was, he was really um, bothered by that. He locked himself in the bathroom and cried. I stood outside the bathroom listening to him cry. Really? For about an hour. Wow. He was not happy about it. And when I asked him, I said, you know, if you don't want me to do this, I won't do it. And he's like, I'm never going to tell you what to do with your life. Hmm. He's like, I'm just never going to tell you that. He's like, I don't think it's an environment that is going to be healthy for you. And I don't think it's a good idea. He's like, but I will never tell you what to do with your life. And at that time, he would, had moved to Arizona to go to medical school. And I wanted to be with him. And I moved here. And so in my mind, I was like, well, if I'm making the money working at the, at the strip club, I can pay for my school. And I can pay our bills while you finish medical school. And then when you become a doctor, I'll quit. Right. And you can take care of me. And that was kind of the plan. I see. But he he didn't really like that whole concept. And he didn't like the idea that I was working in clubs. And so it became... It became a, a source of contention between the two of us because neither of us, being so young, had the relationship skills or the communication communication skills to actually talk about, hey, right. this is bothering me. And so what would happen is he would shut down, 
zone out on watching sports or hanging out in a sports bar watching sports, which made me feel alienated and alone. So in my mind, I was like, well, if you're going to ignore me, then shit, I'll go to work where there's hundreds of men that will throw money at me and pay attention to me. Right. And so each of us were not being authentic in our feelings about how things were going in the relationship. And so, you know, he became very resentful of it and never communicated that honestly. Right. And I became resentful of the fact that he was resentful of me, even though I didn't know he was resentful of me. I could just feel the distance. And so I was like, well, fuck it then. I'll just, you know, go make money. I know where there's a room full of men that will pay attention to me. (laughs) And at that time I was doing it to kind of, you know, avoid the pain of the fact that there's a problem in my relationship and I don't understand and can't identify what it is or, or I don't have the tools to, to deal with it. And it sounds like that just, yeah, the lack of those tools for communicating is what sabotaged it. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And then there were things like, um, so like there was one night where I had planned to stay home and I had cooked dinner for him and I had some, I had bought some sexy lingerie and I had put it on and I had like come out and showed him like, look, babe, look what I bought today. And And he turned to me as he's like kind of halfway in between the, the basketball game. And he just kind of looked at me and he goes, great. How many men have seen you in that? Ooh, ouch. And I remember it was just, Mm. it just broke my heart. And it was an outfit that I had purchased specifically for him. I didn't buy it as, as work attire. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a uniform. It was specifically for him. And when he said that, I just kind of, again, I, 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 my coping skills were, it's okay, I'm going to go make money yeah. and I'm going to go be showered with affection by people in the club. That was my coping right, mechanism. Right. I didn't drink. I didn't do drugs. I wasn't sleeping around. But me going and working 10 hours yeah. would take my mind off the fact that my relationship was falling apart and that I was breaking the heart of the man that I loved. Wow. Wow. And most men will not be honest enough to say I actually really don't want you to do this and I'm not okay with it. They'll try to play like they're secure and they'll try to play like they're confident and it doesn't matter, but it does. Yeah. Especially if a man is a masculine man, he, it it bothers him. It bothers him. Yeah. I would think that I, that makes sense. Um, so then how did you, so you did that, you, you've got all these different things that you do. When did you open your studio and what was the intent of the type of classes you would teach? How did all that begin? So, um, my formal education, like I said, was dance conditioning, sports rehabilitation, kinesiological stretching. So my degree, my first degree, um, from UNLV was, uh, in that. And so all of my studies and all of my education had also put me in a position where I was now a personal trainer and a group fitness instructor. So I was working for pure fitness, which was a chain of gyms here in Arizona And so for several years, I worked for them putting together their group fitness programs. And so I was in charge of hiring and firing all of the um, yoga instructors, fitness instructors that taught group fitness programs, putting together what the group fitness programs would be Mm -hmm. and all of the group fitness classes and teaching a majority of those at several of their locations. And so um, I was still working in strip clubs at the time Mm -hmm. and I was rehabbing injured strippers. And so a lot of the girls would ask, 
you know, can you teach me pull tricks? Or they would say, hey, you know, I'm having problems with my shoulder, problems with my knee, problems with my ankles. And so because my training was in right. rehabilitation, I started rehabbing the group that was closest to me, which was girls wearing heels and dancing on their knees up and down and on poles all day. Yeah, it is painful. So I had it a, is painful. I yeah. can tell you now. <laughs> it is. I oh, know definitely. for sure. Yeah, it's 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 hard on the knees and yeah, all of it. Feet, I think, yeah. Every bone, yeah, that, it's not every easy. bony foot like thing, you know what I mean? Every bone in my yeah. foot would ache. <laughs> Just yeah. yeah it's floor. it's not it's not easy being sleazy. I'll tell you. It's, it's, <laughs> I like it's that. Not. I like that. So I had a lot of women that were coming to me seeking either personal training or rehabilitation for injuries that they had sustained dancing. And um, as a Pilates instructor and a group fitness instructor and a personal trainer, I was certified to be able to right. work that mm-hmm. way. So I had a clientele of private clients that would come to see me. And then I went to the manager of one of the the gyms and I said, you know, um, the next trend is going to be pole dancing. We should put pole dancing in. And he was like, no, there's no way we can put pole dancing here. We're not offering that, blah, blah, blah. And it still had, pole dancing still had a stigma. Right, it, right. The novelty of it hadn't worn off yet. And it was still just stripper dancing. It hadn't been um, uh, castrated or sterilized right. by the fitness industry okay. yet. So they didn't want anything to do with it. So um, I met a woman out of Los Angeles, and she is the uh, creator of the pole cat power method, which is the method that I teach. And it is the first uh, pole logical learning progression for pole. And it centers around um, the correct and logical learning progression for keeping the shoulders engaged and protecting the shoulder, as well as understanding the physics and which I coined stripper physics. Mm -hmm. And so the stripper physics basically is regular physics taught to by a retired stripper, but I'm a dancer on the count to eight, so I don't fuck a math. (laughs) So we do practical (laughs) theory. Okay. Yes. An application of our laws of physics. But originally she was the one who trained me in the method of teaching pole. I already knew how to do pole and how to do aerial and how to teach a little bit of it. But also with my dance conditioning, I wanted a Pilates certification. So I was looking for a program that could give me a license or a certification so that I could now try to have something more legit behind me. Okay. And so she and I met up and she trained me and we partnered together and she gave me the first regional uh, operation here in Arizona. And so I was the lead pussycat for Polecat Power Method in Arizona. And she had her studio in Los Angeles in 2002. And so I would go out there with her to train and teach with her there. And we had, um, you know, mostly it was... Uh, exotic dancers, porn stars, people like Tara Patrick, Jenna Jameson, you know, all these different people were coming in to learn how to do pole because when they promote their porn sites and their videos, they have to go to clubs and perform and they're Uh shit on stage, but they're good at fucking on camera. So (laughs) (laughs) they would come to us and we would teach them how to dance. And so this was our, our demographic and our clientele at first. And then when we started getting the everyday housewife coming to us, Um, with the same injuries from 
one of the first studios that opened yes. that was teaching pole, they were teaching pole incorrectly. And so women were getting seriously injured. Right. It was the same injury from every woman. And so all of these housewives now were going to strip clubs, asking the strippers, what do you do when your shoulder hurts? And the <laughs> yeah. strippers were like, oh, you need to go, you need to go talk to Sean and Nyla. You need, you need to go take this program. Yeah. And that's how we started. And then I opened my first studio here in Arizona in um, 2004. Mm-hmm early 2005. And um, then I opened this location that I'm at now in 2008. And I closed the other one in 2009. So now I've just had this one. So Mm -hmm. that's how I how I started. And originally, I was just teaching pole, because I was still teaching all of the group fitness classes at the gym. So and that's when pole kind of took off for at about the same time. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because as, as it became a novelty and, and like everyday housewives were wanting to do it and then Oprah had it on and yes. then blah, 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 blah. So now everybody, so at that point we were, we were, we had just opened the first studio in LA and we were starting to get a lot of people coming through. And that was when it was warranted that we would need to open a location here in, in uh, Phoenix. Okay. So then let me, let's break that down just a little bit. So, because yeah, cause I'm just a regular old housewife as well. <laughs> you know, but mm-hmm. an architect, mm-hmm. all that jazz, but I'm just a housewife that was interested in it. What, right. so let's, let's right. kind of talk about that for a minute. What do you think is the draw for the typical housewife to go do that? What do you think they like, where does that desire even come from for them? Uh, I, I really think that it has to do with women wanting to be seen and an innate desire for women to want to express their sensual nature, their sensual desires, their secret desires. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that when women, especially who have been in relationships for a extended amount of time, I'm talking anything longer than seven years. Okay. When women have been in a relationship with the same person for an extended amount of time, there becomes a need to be seen differently than the woman that picks up your dirty underwear off the ground, uh, feeds your children, kisses them goodnight, makes your lunch, prepares your breakfast, brings you your coffee, makes your bed. And, you know, there is a need for each woman to want to feel that that part of her that is primally sexual right mm-hmm. has her needs bent and so i think that a lot of women one they either are lacking something in their own self esteem and their own self worth mm-hmm. and so they think that if they can do something that makes them feel sexy that will satiate right their lack of self esteem right they'll think it validates also, their sexiness yeah okay right And they also think that I've been with this person and he doesn't look at me the way he used to. So Mm -hmm. if I do this, eventually maybe he'll think I'm sexy and he'll look at me the way he used to. Or women will come to me and they think, um, you know, my husband cheated on me. And so if I learn to pole dance or lap dance or dance sexy, I can stop him from cheating on me, which is absolutely a fallacy. It's not true. There's nothing you can do to stop a man from cheating on you. He's either got character and he's not a man with no honor or he's a cheater. And that's just how he is. And there's nothing you can do to stop him. Right. So 
a lot of that I think is what drew women to wanting to pole dance initially. Okay. Once they got there and they realized how much fun they were having, how good they felt about themselves, because right. it is very difficult. Yeah. So when you start to get it, and because it is so difficult, when you start to master even the small little things, you 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 start to create a um, an image of self-worth about yourself that resonates with loving yourself. You start to accept your body. You start to radically accept all of the flaws that you see because when you're in on a pole in the mirror in booty shorts, you see every flaw you have. Yeah. yeah. And so the chattering monkeys that normally would tell you you're unattractive, you have no ass, you have no <laughs> boobs, you're fat, yeah. you're too old, you've got wrinkles, yeah. you know, your hair is thinning, you're all, all these other things that the chattering monkeys like to tell us and make us believe about ourselves that makes us believe we are not lovable the way that we are and that we are not valuable the way that they are. Those things come rushing to the forefront of your eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have no choice but to say, yeah. I've got stretch marks. Yeah, there goes some cellulite. So what? I'm going to flip upside down now. Fuck you. This is Unapologetically Karen. And sorry to interrupt. I'm jumping in. I've hit the pause button, my friends. And right on a fantastic soundbite, don't you think? Are you not loving this interview? It is so juicy and Nyla is so insightful that I didn't want it to end. So I've made it a two-parter for you. But I also know how much we love to binge watch and binge listen. So I will not make you wait long. It is available tomorrow. And you don't want to miss this part too. We dive into femininity in a whole new eye-opening way. And I share with you a personal huge epiphany about why I wanted to even try pole dancing. And it hit me while talking to Nyla. It left me surprised. So I know you will be too. Come back tomorrow for more with Nyla Faraz on Chick Chat, the podcast for women by women.